2 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazio, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazio went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in the water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazio became king in his place. God bless the preaching of his word. Excuse me. Perhaps when you have disciplined a child, you said something to the effect of, this is going to hurt me more than it is going to hurt you. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but it is good to keep in mind when we read a passage like today's that it grieves God to bring discipline and judgment. Before us today is the disturbing events that are soon to transpire. There's going to be a change in which God is going to deal with Israel's enemies. God is going to allow his people to fall into the hands of his enemies. But it is important to see the compassionate heart of God in all of this. As the narrative opens, a sick king of Syria sings counsel from Elisha. And by the way, I am not preaching on verses one through six, because I already addressed those a few weeks ago. So we are in verse seven. The Syrian king who is sick is none other than Ben-Hadad, verse seven. Now Elisha came to Damascus, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. Ben-Hadad is the king who had helped Naaman to come to Elisha for healing from his leprosy. He's also the same king who had sent out troops to arrest Elisha with the intent of having Elisha killed because of Elisha's revealing the troop movements of Syria to the Israeli king. This is the same king who had laid siege to the city of Samaria and seeking to starve the inhabitants into submission and surrender, only to find his troops turned away by the very hand of God in sending fear in their midst. 
It just so happens that Elisha comes to Damascus, a town which eventually becomes the capital of Syria, verse 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus, and Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here. This is the only time that Elisha traveled outside of the borders of Israel. It would seem that this is not a coincidence in Elisha coming to Damascus at the very time that the king is sick and wonders about his future. Now the king of Syria is sick and sends a representative to find out if Ben-Hadad will get better or not. Verse 8, the king said, Haziel, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God. And inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? The first thing I want to think about is what does Ben-Hadad's sending a messenger tell us about Ben-Hadad's spiritual condition? Is this a surprising act? Well, I would submit to you that it is not uncommon that those who have been opposed to the Lord turn to that very same Lord in time of physical need. Nonetheless, it's a very good move on the part of the Syrian king to consult Elisha. That is praiseworthy. And Ben-Hadad does not inquire of Ramon, who we know from previous texts, a god that he worshipped. He does not inquire of Ramon whether he's going to get better or not. He inquires of the Lord. Ben-Hadad's king of Syria, inquiring of the Lord, stands in stark contrast to Ahaziah, who was the king of Israel, who in his sickness sought counsel from Baal. If you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 1, it reads, Now Ahaziah, remember he's the king of Israel, fell through the lattice in the upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So here we have a king of Israel that is inquiring of Baal, and we have a king of Syria who is inquiring of the Lord. I want to point out that Ben-Hadad does not merely inquire of Elisha if he is going to get better or not. The king is indeed inquiring of Jehovah if the king will get better or not. Look at verse 8. The king said, Has he, I'll take a present with you and go meet the man of God. And now these words, and inquire of the Lord through him saying, inquire of the Lord through him. The king understands that Elisha is a mere prophet. He is not God. He doesn't just want to hear Elisha's opinion. He wants to hear what God has to say. But he understands that God speaks through Elisha. So he values the prophet's word as God's word. He honors the prophet by sending Haziel to him, as opposed to requiring Elisha to come and see the king. 
The king has come a long way from wanting to see Elisha killed to seeking Elisha's help and honoring him. He has learned much from God's dealings with the Syrians. Has he come to conversion or not? I don't know. I don't know. There are many people who do not really trust in the Lord for their salvation, who ask God's help and want prayer when they are sick. Perhaps you are one this morning who has heard a great deal about God and even asked others to pray for you, but have never really sought the Lord's forgiveness for your sins and asked him to be your Lord and Savior. We may be in doubt concerning Ben-Hadad's spiritual condition, but there is no reason for you to be in doubt this morning about your own spiritual condition. And I say to you, seek the Lord not just in times of need and hardship, in times of sickness, in times of fear, but seek God for the forgiveness of your sins that you might have eternal life and you might know the blessing of having a relationship to God. Well, Haziel is sent to Elisha and is to take Elisha a gift in verse 8. King said to Haziel, take a present with you. This is quite a gift that the king sends. It is rather an outstanding gift in verse 9. So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. That's a sizable gift, 40 camel loads. You may remember that when Naaman had come to Elisha to seek healing from his leprosy, he also brought a gift, a gift that was actually financed by this same king of Syria. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 5, so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing, which itself was a sizable gift, but nothing in comparison to this 40 loads of camels that's coming now. So the king of Syria sends a huge gift to Elisha. The gift most likely was intended to produce a favorable outcome to his question as to whether or not the king would recover from his illness. He obviously wants to get better and sends this gift, hoping for a positive response. Whether Elisha accepted this gift or not, we are not told. I would say most likely he did not if he followed his own example in 2 Kings chapter 5, where he refused a much smaller gift that was presented to him by Naaman. But that's not the point. The emphasis is upon the king of Syria putting his confidence in Elisha. He believes that what Elisha says is going to be the truth. What Elisha says is going to be the king's fate. Now we have Elisha's response to Hazel's question. Hazel's to go and tell the king that the king will not die from his illness. Elisha said to him, go. Say to him, you shall certainly recover. 
However, Elisha tells Haziel that the Lord has revealed to Elisha that the king, though he will not die of his illness, nevertheless is still going to die. Verse 10. Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. So he's not going to die of his illness, but he's certainly going to die. Then Elisha shamed Haziel by just staring at him until Haziel becomes uncomfortable, verse 11. And he, that is Elisha, fixed his gaze and stared at him, that is Haziel, until Haziel is embarrassed. We have a stare down. I don't know if you ever heard of the evil eye, but Elisha just fixes his gaze on Haziel when he tells him that. Because Elisha knows what Haziel is going to do. And eventually, Haziel becomes embarrassed. And then Elisha cries. Verse 11. And the man of God wept. Haziel wants to know why Elisha is crying in verse 12. And Haziel said, why does my Lord weep? Why are you weeping? Elisha weeps because of all the atrocities that Haziel will commit, verse 12. Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant woman, women. Wow, such atrocities. And so Elisha weeps. Haziel finds it hard to believe what he hears. And so we have this curious response, which reveals the blindness of his own heart, verse 13. And Haziel said, but what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? King James translates this in verse 13. Haziel said to him, but what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? There is a question about translation here. The King James is the more literal of the two translations in this particular instance. And I think it better captures the idea of what this verse is saying. Haziel is indignant by what Elisha has just said. Is he really a dog? Is he that terrible? Would he really do these things that are just described? He looks at Elisha and says, don't you have a higher opinion of me than that? I wonder, does Hazel really believe that he would never do these things? Or is this a hypocritical statement? Is he trying to throw Elisha off the track by saying, I'm innocent, I would never do such a thing. Or is he sincere? I would never do a thing like that. Man, what, what kind of person do you think I am? 
yelling at innocent people, whip, whipping, ripping open pregnant women. I would never do that. Well, we can't know for sure. But I personally think Casiel is really shocked by what he hears. And it teaches us that one might be in denial of the wickedness that one is capable of doing. Our own potential for failings are often denied to our own harm and the harm of others. Sometimes we think that we are above certain sins, and we're not. Remember when it was revealed by Jesus that Peter will deny the Lord? Peter wouldn't accept it. When he's told that he is going to be denying the Lord, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter says, that may be true of the rest of the disciples, but I'm willing to die with you. That's not me. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to deny you. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. When the sinful state is revealed, oftentimes, because we think that we would never do such a thing, we do not heed the warning. After this, they depart to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says to Peter and to the immediate cohort, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Peter slept. Jesus wakes him up, tells him to watch with him and to pray. And Peter went back to sleep. For Peter really believed he would never deny the Lord Jesus. You know, we need to guard our hearts. For there are sins perhaps we think we would never commit. But never, ever overestimate the sinfulness and the wickedness of our hearts. I remember when my kids were growing up and setting certain standards and rules for their behavior and their conduct. One thing they used to try on me, and they didn't try it too often, was to say, don't you trust me? And I would look at them and say, honey, it's not you that I don't trust. It's human nature I don't trust. I don't trust anyone. For there is no sin that we are impervious to. We need to guard our hearts. First Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be mindful, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. 
That's the proper response. Lord, search our hearts. Try our thoughts. Reveal to us our real spiritual state. May I understand what moves me. May I be aware of the temptations that I face. May I become more aware of the secret sins, of my own weaknesses, my own failings, my own limitations, and pray that God would lead us in the way of everlasting, of truth, of righteousness and holiness. Hazel is going to do all of this when he becomes king over Syria, verse 13. And Hazel said, but what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has showed me that you shall be king over Syria. This is God's continued judgment upon Israel. God is the one who places Hazel king over Syria. Remember God's word to Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. Back when Elijah is on the mount, in verse 15 it said, The Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. It is God's judgment upon the nation of Israel that is coming to pass. Israel has not turned to the Lord despite all that God has done for them. Remember, you know, Israel is out of a relationship with God. They are worshiping Baal. They are worshiping false gods that Jeroboam had established, idols that they are worshiping, saying that these idols were the gods that brought them out of the land of Egypt. You have the showdown on the top of Mount Carmel with Elijah. You have all of the workings that have taken place since then of God revealing himself and fighting for the nation of Israel time and time again. Israel has not turned to the Lord despite all that God has done for them. So a change is going to take place after the death of Ben-Hadad and during the days of Hazael. Up until this point, God has not allowed Ben-Hadad to be successful against Israel. Philip Ryken in his commentary writes, and I quote, For all his aggression, Ben-Hadad was never able to defeat the people of God. For example, when Ben-Hadad surrounded Elisha at Dothan, he himself was surrounded by an unseen army of angels. God blinded the Arameans and delivered them into Elisha's hand. Later, when the king besieged Samaria, Ben-Hadad's army was frightened by spooky noises in the night and fled in terror, leaving all their supplies behind, end quote. So time and time again, Ben-Hadad had brought an army against Israel, and time and time again, God single-handedly, miraculously delivered the Israelites by sending an angelic army, by blinding the army of the Syrians, by scaring them to death, and they retreat when they're besieging the city. Despite all of these incredible displays of God's power and his protection and his goodness to the people of Israel, they failed to repent. They failed to turn to the Lord. They failed to change from their wicked ways and their false worship. 
So God is going to change in the way in which he deals with Israel. God is going to give Israel into the hands of Haziel because of Israel's false worship. Turn with me, if you would, keep your fingers here. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 10. Second Kings chapter 10, starting with verse 31. 2 Kings 10, 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord, now that's important to note, it is the Lord, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites, and from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So God started to give portions of Israel into the very hands of Haziel. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 3. 2 Kings 13, 3. There's a progression in this text. 2 Kings 13, 3. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. That's Ben-Hadad II. So here is God continually now giving the hand of Israel into the hand of the king of Syria. They're losing battle after battle after battle for their unrepentance. However, God will still have compassion on Israel. Look at 2 Kings 13, 4. It's important that you see the big picture. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, because he saw the oppression of the Lord, of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. However, God will still have compassion on Israel. Even when Israel is unrepentant, look at the very next verse, verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not part from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. So God continually gives them into the hands of the Syrians, and things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then God has compassion for all the misery, all the heartache. And God delivers them. And still no repentance. Still no change. Still the false worship. And a failure to worship the true and living God. But God is compassionate. Keep that thought. 
Though Haziel is unwittingly accomplishing God's purpose, Haziel himself was evil. Haziel was a murderer. He went and delivered Elisha's message, as he was told in verse 14. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover, which was true. However, Haziel is not like David. Remember when David is anointed to be king in Saul's stead, David repeatedly refused to take the life of Saul, even when he was counseled by his own soldiers to do so. Repeatedly, he spared the life of Saul. Not so Haziel. Haziel, when he knows that the king is going to get better, takes matters into his own hands and suffocates him. Verse 15. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. So what are we to think? What are we to do with a passage such as this? What are we to learn from it? Well, first, that God rules not only over Israel, but Syria as well. And not just Syria, but the entire world. Our call to worship this morning was Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God uses an evil man to accomplish God's purposes. But Haziel was wicked in what he did and the reasons for which he did it. We find that God has a purpose, even in the wickedness that this man did. We learn that God brings judgment upon the non-repentant. And so, God is going to bring hardship and destruction against the children of Israel. But what I want to leave us with this morning is to never forget that the God who brings judgment is a compassionate God. The God who brings judgment is a compassionate God. God is merciful in warning of a judgment to come. Repeatedly, God had warned the nation of Israel of his coming judgment, but they would not repent. And not only did he warn them of his coming judgment, but he demonstrated his power. He showed how he can deliver. He revealed that if they would but trust in him, that all would be well. Time and time again, God delivered Israel from Ben-Hadad, though they were unrepentant. But all that did was secure in their own thinking that their unrepentance didn't matter. That they were doing just fine. And God was watching over them and God is protecting them. Well, we need to realize that there is a great warning of future judgment for all those who have never placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a judgment day. There is going to be a time of great sorrow and misery. There is a hell. And we are to take the warning of a coming judgment to a fallen world. God has entrusted 
to us a message that we're to tell others of their need to be forgiven by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and following says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And now listen to these words. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ that God has made us ambassadors. We are to be representatives of God. He was the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords. We are to be sent to the nations, declaring God's word. And it says that on the very behalf of Christ, in the place of Christ, we are to implore people to believe in him. The word implore is often translated to plead or to beg. This is not a word of indifference. It's a word filled with urgency and compassion. God pleads with sinners through us to be reconciled to God. So let's go back and look more carefully at what the text says concerning Elisha. Verse 12. And Haziel said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Why does Elisha weep? Because God weeps. Because God weeps. The prophet conveyed not only the message of God, but he conveyed the heart of God. It's not just that Elisha is saddened by what is going to come upon the people. God is saddened by all that is going to come upon the people. And we find out that even in the midst of it, God still has compassion and still raises and removes them from all that they are going through. And still they're unrepentant. And so God is saddened once again to bring discipline and judgment. In the book of Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not gleefully send people to hell. God is not indifferent when he confines people to hell. He takes no delight in it. That is incredibly important for us to understand. As many of you know, I'm chairing a study committee, as was mentioned this morning, on what the Bible teaches concerning eternal conscious torment. For a year, I've been looking over the passages that teach of eternal conscious torment. On the committee, they've assigned me with the specific task to develop resources, materials for teaching and preaching on eternal conscious torment. 
I am in the process of putting together a series of sermons in how to address the issue of eternal conscious torment. One of my great concerns is not only that we convey the message of God's judgment, which is true, but also that we convey the heart of God in that judgment. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like Elisha who weeps when he thinks of the miseries that are to come upon the nation of Israel, so too we should weep as we think of those who experience the miseries of hell. We should never become so hard and so discompassionate that we are not moved at the thought of what people are going to endure. Not just our loved ones and not just our family, but even as we think of our worst enemy. What a hideous thought. The psalmist says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God rejoices when people repent. Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. God is thrilled with repentance. God delights when people turn from sin and turn to him. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He wants to bring reconciliation. That is so, so important for us to understand, especially those of us who hold to the doctrine of election. Understand it, brothers. But God aches over the lost. And so should we. We should be moved to the point that we tell others. We should be moved to the point that we declare the truth of God's word. Once again, I say to you this morning, if you never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I beg of you to do so. Hell is real, and I don't apologize for it. I don't mitigate it, I don't remove it, I don't take it out of the scriptures, it is true. And I plead with you, don't continue to reject the goodness and grace of God. He calls upon all men everywhere to repent. Trust in him. Know the forgiveness of sins. Experience eternal joy. Don't harden your hearts anymore. 
There may be people here who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, just like Israel has experienced the goodness of God and yet still sit on the fence and have never come to a place where they acknowledge their own sin and the need to be forgiven. So I'm going to stop right now and ask that we bow our heads and beg you, if you've never received Christ, that today You ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to turn from your sins and to walk with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray for your spirit to work and to move. And if there is anyone here this morning who has never, ever placed their faith and trust in Jesus, I, I pray today would be that day. And just so that you are aware that you are making a decision today that you aren't just letting this go by, but consciously, if you are not choosing to accept Christ, having already done so, then you are choosing to reject Christ. And so if there's anyone here this morning who desires to be saved, to experience this grace and goodness of God of which we are talking about, would you just quickly raise your hand? I'm not asking you to come forward or to do anything, but would you raise your hand this morning that you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? May we be moved by the knowledge of what will befall the people who do not repent of their sins and trust in Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. May we be more diligent in telling others of their need. Our Father, we come before you, you who are the God of all comfort and the God of salvation. We ask for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would bring people to yourself. And I pray that you would instill within us a greater heart of compassion. May we never be able to think about hell without being moved. Grieved. May our hearts ache for those that refuse to believe. May we never be gleeful. Never may we speak about this doctrine with harshness and indifference. But Lord, help us to weep even as Elisha weeps. And more importantly, as you weep. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.